Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. When populist strongmen have little else to offer, they offer pride. Those are the words of Delhi-based political columnist Asim Ali in a piece that looked at the parallels between Erdogan and Modi. We may dislike them, but we cannot ignore them. According to the Tony Blair Institute, populist leaders have increased fivefold between 1990 and 2018. My guest today is a historian and professor at New York University who has quite literally devoted her entire career as a scholar to the study of authoritarianism. I consumed her latest book, Strongmen, How They Rise, Why They Succeed, How They Fall, like a man in a desert with a tall glass of water, and I just knew I had to speak to her. Welcome to the bunker, Ruth ben Giat. Thank you. Ruth, you look at the arcs of several authoritarian leaders as sort of paradigms, and through that you weave the strands in common. Some are entirely unsurprising, but there will be critics who find the inclusion of people like Narendra Modi, Silvio Berlusconi, and Donald Trump alongside Pinochet and Franco much more controversial. What is the thread? that links them? I'm a historian, and this is not a work of comparative politics. What I wanted to do, I felt it was the time, to trace a history of authoritarianism over 100 years and see how it had changed. So there's, you know, I start with the fascists, and because I'm a scholar of uh, right-wing authoritarianism, although I have Qaddafi in there, I decided to focus on, you know, the fascists and what happens to fascist impulses and styles of governing after fascism dies in 1945. So I'm looking at what has changed and what has stayed the same. And so today, for example, there are fewer outside of communism, one-party states, where you shut down all opposition, shut down all other media, independent media. Today, as with you know the kind of authoritarian style presidencies of, or prime ministers of, Berlusconi and Trump, you keep elections going and authoritarian impulses can manifest in a democracy. So the idea is not to say that Trump is like Mussolini. The idea is to say that this is how things manifest today because we have evolved away from the years uh, of total dictatorship. Yeah, so it's an evolution of almost the toolkit isn't it, for, for authoritarianism? Yes, and, and I, it would have been, uh, believe me, a lot easier to structure the book in terms of biography. So you have a chapter on Mussolini, a chapter on Hitler, etc. But what I wanted to do is structure it around what I call the tools of rule, propaganda, corruption, violence, machismo, etc. And each chapter goes over 100 years so that you see what has stayed the same, like personality cults, which is remarkable how, how similar the principles are you know, for 100 years, and what has changed. Not only, as I said, you, today you keep elections going and then you find ways to kind of subvert them, but also social media, for example, which of course didn't exist before. So it's really an exercise in letting people see how authoritarianism has evolved and also how leaders exert their power in these different contexts. You open the book with an extraordinary exchange between Berlusconi and one of his mistresses, 
about <laughs> the Putin bed. I shan't spoil it for listeners. You do this to illustrate the personal relationship, the, the, the sort of intimacies and friendships between strongmen. How important is that network? The central kind of principle that I work with in the book about, you know, who's a strongman, right? What, are the, what does it mean to be a strongman? One is that they are leaders who use kind of machismo as part of their governing strategy as well as their image. The other is that they personalize politics. And so everybody in my book, the criteria was that they are personalist rulers, meaning their personal financial needs, their political obsessions, like Hitler with the Jews, come to define national policy. And so do their personal relationships with other despots or other leaders. And so woven throughout the book, and this is the beginning, starts with Berlusconi and Putin, how not only they were very, very close, but Berlusconi ended up kind of personally taking over Russia policy kind of exit making the official foreign policy establishment up through the ambassadors had no say anymore. So he personally managed the relationship with Russia in, in ways that also happened under Trump in some aspects. Yes. So this personalization of power, you can see how it facilitates corruption, which is often at the basis of such relationships. But it also um, has this kind of cult of the bromance, as you say, in, in the States, the kind of close male bonding, which is part of their public appeal to people. Does it follow that the loss of someone like Trump was actually a blow to someone like Bolsonaro? Yeah, I think so. And it's been very interesting to see that the personality cults of these leaders posit them as omnipotent, all successful, again, all powerful, um, omnipresent. And what's gone on in the United States with Trump is extremely interesting because so he lost the election, but his big lie, what it did psychologically in terms of we think about the history of the bonds between the leader and his followers, the big lie, which said that he didn't actually lose, that it was Joe Biden, who stole the election from him, and that's how we got January 6th, meant that his followers, buried millions of devoted you know, cult followers, did not have to psychologically reckon with his loss. He remained a winner in their eyes. Yes. And that's been very important to other leaders. And so Steve Bannon, who's a Trump advisor since 2016, is also a Bolsonaro advisor. And all of them were hoping that something similar would happen in Brazil after Bolsonaro's loss. And it's a very interesting case study because in Brazil, they had a over 20-year military dictatorship, which only ended in 1984. So they know very well what the stakes are <laughs> of, mm -hmm. of uh, January 6th if it was equivalent. And so Bolsonaro's didn't work because all of the authorities, including the Supreme Court, promptly certified the results and it short-circuited his attempt. Mm. But you see how important this idea, once it's punctured, the idea that the strongman is omnipotent and he can get away with anything, because the essence of authoritarianism is that you get away with anything. 
That's the powerful man. Then it goes badly for them. And that's what happened to Bolsonaro. I just wonder whether by, you know, hitting their star on one another, it also creates a sort of vulnerability, you know, that that network that can be a source of strength when they're all in place might be a source of weakness if the dominoes are seen to begin to tumble. It can, but the thing about strongmen is that they are quintessentially transactional beings. Hmm. That's why, like, the most famous example is the Nazi Soviet pact, and then Hitler invaded the Soviet Union. So the same principle that leads them to, to get followers, because they will say anything to anyone to get power, they will be whatever the public needs them to be, because they have no moral code. And this was very disturbing to see that some of the people in power now or also Trump had essentially very similar personalities to these, you know, historic dictators. Yeah. The outcome is very different. So that means that if they feel, look what happened recently with Putin and Xi Jinping, where they allied in a very public manner in late 2021, they appeared together and they said, well, it's going to be a new age of international relations, which was not going to be a good news for democracy. And then Xi Jinping has distanced himself from Putin because Putin made yes. this colossal mistake. So that's a good example of the transactional nature. You have a deal until you don't have a deal anymore. You're friends until you're not friends. Yes, it's mercurial. Being able to say anything means also that you can unsay anything. Exactly. Um, you also um, highlight, which I thought was a really interesting part of the book, the, the importance of financial networks, because like everyone else, strongmen need funding to wrest power and then need ways to funnel the gains of power. Is this underappreciated as a sort of control mechanism? Are, are the sanctions on Putin, for instance, a, a bit of a game changer in the way we think? They are. And I actually added the corruption chapter to the book because I'd written about propaganda and violence, unfortunately, but not on corruption. But I saw that it was absolutely central. And in the book, I deal with financial corruption as well as kind of, let's say, moral corruption, how you get people to accept things that they previously wouldn't accept. But one of the key takeaways is that these today where you know in the old days they would just it was the swiss uh you would keep your your million your billions in the swiss banks and the swiss were the main player today mm -hmm. it's this whole uh you know offshore finance which is facilitated by mostly the us and great britain you know with the london and now we have delaware and, and the dakotas as these hubs of money laundering and these this is what keeps uh these strong men uh in power the ability for them to, to steal from their people and funnel the money into offshore financial hubs. Mm. And so I really wanted to highlight, um, and it's at its peak, you know, Putin has a kleptocracy. And I believe we should never mention Putin's Russia without saying it's a kleptocracy because it affects everything. He has the largest kleptocracy after Gaddafi and Mobutu, who are also in my book. And so the, the enablers who I felt very angry when I wrote the book, thinking of all the enablers who sit and enjoy the, the freedoms, you know, living in London or Washington, D.C., and the PR firms, the lobbying firms, the wealth managers, the accountants, 
all of these people who um, make dictators uh, able to stay in power um, and, and, and become billionaires, they are all they are all complicit, and yet we don't focus on them very much. You write that authoritarians, to quote you, don the cloak of national victimhood, reliving the humiliations of the people by foreign powers as they proclaim themselves the nation's saviors. Reading this, I could not avoid drawing some parallels with Brexit. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And I wondered, considering what you've talked about, the personalization that is essential to this kind of regime. Can you have such a thing as a sort of strongman movement, even though they lack the focus of a single person? Or is that a complete oxymoron? Can a concept basically be a proxy for a a strongman? No, you can. And in fact, um, I don't use the word populist very much. But it's very applicable that you have you can have leaders who use the victimhood, and all of them do very effectively. But then sometimes in other contexts, you have populist, you know, right wing populist parties or movements who can drive a cause that is like Brexit, which was a perfect storm of the idea of victimhood, of kind of you know we need our sovereignty, being cheated, being robbed, an imagined past. That's another, that's another common thread among them, yeah. Yes, my, my mother, she's originally from Scotland, but she, she's lived in, she lives in Cheshire. She's lived in England for many, many years. And she was always a conservative and a big fan of the Queen. The Queen was a big personage in my house uh, when we grew up. And uh, she, she voted for Brexit. And uh, only, only now does she uh, say that she regrets it because it was a mistake. But the propaganda campaigns that were carried out around Brexit by, you know, the, this movement, and, and which included, you know, elites, it's, it's very interesting. This, it's like a faux populism for some. Hmm. Um, you pose as uh, acting in the people's best interest, but it, who, you look at who is actually benefiting from these things. And I see these things in a global frame. And Brexit was, you know, the most clamorous of uh, these kinds of secessionist impulses that Putin and the Kremlin playbook has been waging this war on democracies to try and get them to to, to break up, meet the fate in a way of um, mm. whether it's in a system-wide thing like Brexit or, uh, you know, the Russians have been funding secessionism in California and Texas. The idea is to attack the unity and polarize people and make them weaker by getting them to act against their own interests. That's the, that's the tragic concept that um, authoritarians manage to implement, and Brexit's a, a wonderful example. And, and even though there wasn't an authoritarian leader, it was more a populist party. Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. Looking at the subject of 
disinformation propaganda. I, I was actually led to your book by a particular passage, which I'd like to read. It goes, the decay of truth and democratic dissolution proceed hand in hand, starting with the insurgent's assertion that the establishment media delivers false or biased information, while he speaks for truth and risks everything to get the real facts out. Once his supporters bond to this person, they stop caring about his falsehoods. They believe him because they believe in him. That's quite bleak because it, it seems to imply that once someone is lost to it, they are lost forever. How does one push back against that kind of circular belief system where any data or facts or argument that you supply against that leader is dismissed because, of course, you would say that you're part of the establishment. Yeah, and, and, and this is a huge, you know, problem of our time. And social media is is um, makes this so much easier for people to become radicalized. And I call it being in the disinformation tunnel. But the the believe him because believe in him is important, and it's why. For example, it's very important to prosecute strongmen and to show mm. that they can be held accountable, that they're not omnipotent, that they're common mortals. Because one of the themes of the book shows that, and this is up, up through Trump, where mm. religious institutions will collude by saying, oh, uh, the strongman is there by the will of God. Um, so Trump got Orthodox Jews and evangelical Christians to say that, you know, his time in office was mandated by God. And that protects them. And that increases the, the chances of people falling into the state that you describe. So yeah. when, when they um, are defeated or, they, or circumstances are such where they're prosecuted or it shows that they're actually a common mortal, that... Start that can start people waking up from their bubble of disinformation. The other is it's very important to, to try to communicate with people uh, who are in this state because the, the, and this is something that this council is people who work on cults, people who work on authoritarianism like me, and people who work on disinformation. Everybody says that you shouldn't just cast them off, although it's tempting. <laughs> um, because they seem impervious to, to logic. You must, even if it's just keeping touch in touch with them and, and talking about other things, you must stay near to them because sooner or later they will start to emerge and you have to be there because if you cast them off, they just go deeper into their tribal community. And I, mm. I had a personal experience with this uh, over the pandemic. My mother started watching uh, RT, Russia Today. And she's in a small village, and and would, she would go out and have her coffee, and but she couldn't do that anymore. And she became completely radicalized, and she would talk about Putin incessantly. She never talked about Putin before, and so I saw this, and I tried to you know tell her that this was Kremlin propaganda, but she really wouldn't listen to me. And so at first, I just wanted to stop talking to her, and then I thought, no, <laughs> this you you have to you have to take the counsel that you are actually have you studied. So it's, it's very difficult. And I know that many millions of people are in the same position, but the answer is not to um, cast them off. The answer is dialogue. You added an epilogue to the paperback edition about the rise of far-right movements in Europe, 
which sadly also predicted what transpired with Giorgia Meloni and the Fratelli d'Italia. At the same time, there are other instances where this sort of movement seems to have hit a ceiling or even deflated, like Alternative für Deutschland or Golden Dawn in Greece. I know there are individual factors at play in various countries, but is there something more general that makes the difference? That's a good question. I think that the past of a country matters. In Italy, I wasn't surprised at what has happened because neo-fascism, this is why Berlusconi is so important in my book. Berlusconi, in the 90s, he broke the taboo of bringing uh, the far right into power. He was the first person since 1945 to put neo-fascists in the government. Mm. And it only lasted six months, but it it like broke all the taboos. And so then he came back for two other governments, and this is when he was very cozy with Putin. And you ended up with a neo-fascist as vice president of the Senate. You had people, and I was I, I go to Italy a lot. I saw with my own eyes that people who used to be considered fringe extremists, now they're sitting in parliament. So for many, many years, the neo-fascists were mainstreamed. And so it wasn't surprising in that sense that somebody who actually was a neo-fascist who kept in her party's logo the flame of the original neo-fascist party, she refused to get rid of it because that's her, she really is a hardcore neo-fascist. Um, she's a demagogue. And that's so, it wasn't that surprising that there you were able to have this government come in um, on the 100th anniversary of the founding of fascism because mm. it had been sustained by Berlusconi and others for so many decades. And that that's different, certainly in Germany. That's not at all the case. And it's also True. different, even though Greece had its own authoritarian moments, you didn't have that kind of institutional, you didn't have a Berlusconi. <laughs> yes, they were traumatic rather than uh, yes. glorified. To begin to wrap up, can I throw something a little more difficult your way? I recently interviewed um, Nelson Mandela's biographer, and he remarked on Mandela's lack of internal conflict in political terms, a sort of no second guessing himself. And I couldn't help but note a section in your book where you talk about how strongmen present the other side's uncertainty and debate as weakness and amorality. Is a lack of certainty among progressives one of the conditions that foment authoritarianism? Do we need to be more certain of and unapologetic about what we are for? I absolutely think we do, and part of my next project is is going to be about anti-authoritarianism, and that's one of the recommendations. Mm. We, we've been, in fact, if you look at elections in 2022 that have not gone well for uh, center-left parties, it's because they've been way too timid, like in Israel, in Italy, it was a disaster for the center-left. They, they, yeah. they either were seen as they moved to the center they were seen as too elitist, as really not embracing, uh, not not giving solutions to the the sufferings that people feel, um, and also not standing for any for anything, in a in a in a, in a way that like privileges values, and so that's mm. why the right has we we have to have some like tough love here, right? The right has been much more effective at 
at mobilizing people's emotions, at responding to their emotions. Like, like look at Trump. He said, he told, even on January 6th, he said, I love you. He told people he loved them, that they were the forgotten and they would be forgotten no longer. Well, that's very yeah. like powerful. And, yeah. and, and of course, the, the, the center-left progressives are not going to be manipulating emotions, like they're not going to be using victimhood and the negative emotions, but they can uh, stand for something in an unapologetic way. And that's what definitely, given the recent outcomes that have shown that what they're doing isn't working, <laughs> I think it's time <laughs> to try uh, something along the lines of what you suggest. One final question. The book is about authoritarianism, but it's also about men. Misguided concepts of masculinity seem inextricably weaved into authoritarianism. But do you think we will see the first strong woman authoritarian regime soon? Or are, there, are these things exclusive of each other? No, and, and in fact... In the conclusion to the original edition, which I turned in in the summer of 2020, I say that it's inevitable that we'll have a female-led authoritarian state. Now, what that means today is not a regime in the old style, but somebody who's ruling in a democracy, but then as, as Viktor Orban did, right? You slowly can destroy it or create an environment for for uh, you know, far-right mm -hmm. uh, politics to triumph. And I had named at the time Marine Le Pen, but of course, in the, in the, by the time I did the epilogue for the next, the paperback edition, I had signaled that Maloney, she'd come on the horizon. And yeah. so she's the first one. She's a, she's a demagogue. Again, she's ruling in a democracy because that's what you do today. But Mussolini too, started out as prime minister in a democracy for three years. He's a much better, we all think about Hitler all the time, but Mussolini is actually a better guide to how authoritarianism works to degrade democracies. So she's, she's the strong woman. We'll see what happens. She's still new, but she's a strong woman type, I think, the best I've seen. Professor Ruth Ben-Giet, thank you for your time and for your life's work. Thank you so much. Strongmen, How They Rise, Why They Succeed, How They Fall is out now and I recommend it most highly. Remember, if you like our work, you can support our work on the funding platform Patreon from as little as £3. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. You will get every edition early and with no ads. Ruth Ben-Giert ends her book on a hopeful note. The story of the strongman, rife with tragedy, also offers lessons in hope and resiliency. It urges us to invest in democracy. As my recent guest Rick Stengel said, democracy is not an engine that runs on its own. It needs shoulders put to the wheel. And at a time we see a proliferation of those who would push in the opposite direction, the strength and numbers with which we push back matter all the more. This is Alexandreou in the bunker saying over and out. Bunker Daily was written and presented by Alex Andre. The producers were Alex Reese and Jeff Gerbertson, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. 
The group editor is Andrew Harrison, and our marketing manager is Gina Richard. Artwork by James Parrott, with music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>